0: Dr. Gary F. Marcus is director of the NYU Center for Language and Music and professor of psychology at New York University. Some of his better known books are The Birth of the Mind and the New York Times editor's choice Kluge, which is a book about the haphazard construction of the human mind. In this particular interview we speak with Gary about the haphazard construction of the human mind and what it implies for understanding our own thought and thinking process in addition to what implications it might hold for the future of human enhancement. So Gary, the the, the first question I was interested in asking simply because the the first references that I really saw of yours were your book Clues, which is sort of the the haphazard construction of the the human mind, um, was how how that haphazard evolution of the mind and brain itself um, produced some of the heuristics and the flaws in our thought. You know, I'm familiar with heuristics being a psychology guy by training, but not so much in terms of how that was brought about. I'm interested in sort of your insights and oversight on that.
1: Well, the book Kluge, and Kluge is a... Um, old engineer's word for a clumsy solution. You can think of MacGyver, kind of duct tape and rubber bands. The, yep. the, the thesis of that book is that the human mind is a kludge, um, And I think the heuristics and biases literature gives a lot of pointer in that direction and I was thinking about how this relates to the idea of um, evolutionary psychology and, and how our minds have been shaped uh, by evolution. Yep. And what I argued there is that you might expect that evolution is not perfect, but instead it makes local maxima, which are good, um, but not necessarily the best possible solutions. And an example that I gave was the human spine, which allows us to stand upright, but it also gives us back pain. It's not all that well engineered. We can imagine a better solution like a tripod with three legs or something like that, um, your three, three branches, yep. um, that would distribute the load better. Um, but we have this lousy solution in which our spines are basically like a flagpole supporting 70% of our body weight. Uh, the reason for that is because we're evolved from tetrapods. They have four limbs and they, they distribute their weight horizontally like a picnic table. That's yep. a much better solution. As we moved upright, we took sort of what was closest in evolutionary space, what took the fewest number of genes in order to give us this new kind of system um, of standing upright. But it's not what you would have if you designed from scratch. No. And what I talked about in Kluge is there's a kind of typical notion in evolutionary psychology that we've evolved to be optimal, but if you really look at what's going on, the way that the mind works is a function of two things. One is what would be optimal, but the other is our history, so how did we get there? So evolution at any given moment is basically a probabilistic process of genes that are nearby that might give advantage, and the genes that are nearby aren't necessarily the the ones that are uh, the best for a given solution. A lot of the book was actually about our memories. And the argument that I made is that if you really wanted a system, a brain, that does the things that humans do, you would want a kind of memory system that we find in computers, which is called location-addressable memory. Got it. Lo- location-addressable memory, you can say, I'm going to store this in, in location 7, this in location 8, and 9, and then you're guaranteed to be able to go back to the thing you want when you want it. Yes. Which is why computer memory is reliable. Our memory is not even remotely
0: reliable. No, no not 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 even close.
1: So I can forget, you know, what I was going to say four seconds ago. I can forget where I was going to park my car. I
0: can forget your anniversary, all that stuff. Forget my anniversary. You
1: know, nowadays I rely on my iPhone to help me with all that stuff. But yeah. Still forget to look at the iPhone. Like the memories <laughs> are, are really uh, nothing close to how the sort of theoretical uh, optima that a computer shows us. So that's of the first part of the argument that I was making was simply to assert the facts that our memories aren't very good. That doesn't take too much convincing. No. Uh, People realize that. Um, The question is, why are they so poor? And how does that relate to where we are now? So I further argued that for the kinds of things that we do now, we might like to have much more precise memory. The question is, why don't we have more precise memory? And the argument that I made was that we are evolved from creatures that basically needed to have statistically... Uh, common information available quickly, the recent information uh, and the frequent information, and to have central tendencies. So, uh, you know, some of our ancestors, it was enough to just know, is there more food up the hill or down the hill?
0: Yeah, I was going to say, let's get into some evolutionary examples just to walk through this. Okay, so up the hill or down the hill? uh, So, So
1: basically, all creatures that we look at, all multicellular creatures, seem to have this thing called context-dependent memory, which is a different way of arranging memory, where basically reminders give you what you need. So I've been in a situation, doing that situation, how did it work out for me? Um, which is very different from the way computer memories work, where fundamentally there's an underlying master map. So we have this context-dependent memory stuff, and it's good for giving you something quick, but it's not good for giving you something reliable. Yep. And that was okay if most of your decisions are kind of statistical decisions, you don't need precision, but if you need to give eyewitness testimony or to, or to parse a sentence it's not so good. So it turns out, for example, we can get confused by complex sentences in a way that would never make any sense on a computer. So um, if you have a sentence like, it was the banker that the lawyer loved, people get confused. Which one was doing the loving? Was it the banker or the lawyer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I reviewed a lot of evidence from linguistics but also from reasoning showing that what seemed to explain what was going on was basically a poor fit between the kind of memory that we have and the kind of memory that you would want for the computations that we do. So think, for example, about confirmation bias to take one of my favorite examples Mm -hmm. from from the heuristics and biases literature, yep. um, we notice evidence that supports our theories and we tend not to notice evidence that goes against our theories. This has huge consequences uh, politically, for example, because everybody thinks that they're right and their neighbors are wrong because yeah, they,
0: were, they, were, righteousness. they favor their own theory. Yep. Righteous so mind.
1: friction escalates and this can you know lead to wars or at least leads to like battles between roommates, right? Sure does. And... The underlying cause of that, I believe, is is again the way our memories are organized. So in a computer you can search systematically. You can say, give me everybody in zip code 21218, and give me everybody who is not in zip code 21218. And we simply cannot search our memories in that way. And so we wind up with this bias where things that match a set of cues, typically my own theory, Uh, are the things that we're easily able to remember, and we're not very good at finding the non-matches. There are lots of things like that, where if we had a different memory system, we might uh, reason a lot better. Another famous example is called the focusing illusion. Um, This is the one where I ask you, um, how happy are you with your life in general and how how many dates have you had lately and there's no correlation but I ask it the other way around I say how many dates have you had lately and then how happy are you with your life in general and then suddenly they become very correlated because yeah. now you base the life in general based on this last little random piece of data that I made you
0: think about yeah wow and, and I mean well, there's just so many of those I mean it's I guess you know the, the anchoring notion in heuristics as well you know when something looks massively expensive and you drop the price and there's sort of this hyper-arbitrary number that you're then referring to that makes something appear cheaper than maybe you ever would have thought it was if you just that saw pre- that, that. Or another fact. version
1: of the anchoring effect, and I think it's part of the same phenomena, is the famous buy 12 uh, or limit 12 sign, right? You're in the grocery store, and that anchors you. You think, I don't need 12 of these or even 10 or 11, but you end up buying six you know, cans of soup um, because they told you limit 12 when you actually needed two. Right. So you've anchored at the high end of yep. the
0: distribution. Yep. Yeah, yeah the, I, I believe that that is... You know. Uh, about as, yeah similar similar as all heck to the anchoring uh heuristic in that respect um with re, with regard to uh why you know the, that that you you had mentioned something like statistical decisions you had said something about not being pre- precise I don't I don't think you made you meant decisions based off of our own ability to perform statistical analysis I think you meant you know Aggregate decision making. What did you mean when you said you know when our decisions are just kind yeah, of statistical? Exactly. Our
1: memory systems are pretty good at, at kind of getting aggregate quantitative data. There's more food there than there
0: is over here. Got it. Okay, that's what you're implying. Yep. And and of course, you know, in some respects, I think people give a lot of credence to, and some people believe that machines will just never be able to uh, to you know have have that um, ad hoc ability to say, oh, well, this train is coming in this direction. I shouldn't do this or well, you know, the last time that the weather was like this, this happened over here, and so I won't do that. And so there's there's this virtue to this kind of contextual capacity to remember and remind and whatnot. Um, but of course, there's all these inherent limitations at the same time. Um, in terms of why it was evolutionarily beneficial uh, to, to have the kind of memory that we do, or, or maybe to not have the kind of memory we wish we did, um, why? Why is that? In other words, why? Why don't we have just a smidge more of you know being able to recall particular numbers, people in certain area codes, whatever the case, the case may be? What were your thoughts about that in the book? There. So the
1: key idea there is what I call evolutionary inertia, which is once something is in place, it's very hard for evolution to change it. Yes. Um, there is no designer out there. It's really a statistical matter of probabilities. But um, if you change one or two genes, you might have a, a um, organism that survives. If you change several hundred, most likely things are going to break. And so most evolutionary changes are changes of small numbers of genes, um, or you know small numbers of nucleotides in individual genes. And so what that means, typically, is that rather than starting from scratch to find the right solution to a problem, evolution tends to tinker with the solution that's already there. So we go back to my example about the spine. Um, Rotating our spine 90 degrees is cheap in genetic terms. The developmental biology is such that you can rotate the pelvis with not that much genetic change, and now you have this horizontal spine suddenly become vertical. Um, to build a three-column thing or four columns in shock absorbers would require an enormous number of genes to change roughly simultaneously, and so that just doesn't happen, um, or it's, it's at least exceedingly rare. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, and, and even, even the walking uh, creatures, you know, presumably... Um you know their their fundamental spine was maybe built off of the spine of of some kind of swimming creature. Um, and, and
1: so there is you know Darwin's phrase was descent with modification, and those yep. modifications typically are small. So the problem with our memory system is it evolved from a memory system that was perfectly adequate, a contextual cue-based memory was perfectly adequate for creatures that don't live in the cognitive niche the way that we do. If, yes, if all you have to do is generally know, where things are then the memory we have is is pretty good but when you import that system into a creature that relies with such precision on its memory as with us it becomes problematic but it would be just too expensive to start over from scratch maybe hundred thousand years from now or 50,000 years from now. We'll know enough about genetics, developmental biology, developmental neuroscience to say we'll actually like an upgrade. We'd like to rewire the, the memory system, of human beings to work in this other kind of way. But right now we don't know how to do it. And it would require an enormous amount of genetic change. And statistically it's just too improbable and so it hasn't happened.
0: Got it. Okay. Um, yeah and, and there as are you are
1: actually to talk about something else that sure. I think you've wanted to discuss. There are ways that we might actually build nervous system implants where the memory is in the implant. So we don't rewire our own brains, but we build something else that we wire into our brains. Yes. That's probably actually a better solution.
0: Okay, but, got it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because different people have different opinions there. You know, I've had, you know, more PhDs than I can shake a stick at on Tech Emergence over time. And, you know, some folks are, are really more, you know, bullish or bearish about the the organic or inorganic, uh, you know, the, the evolved or the innovated sort of solution to um, our, our own cognitive issues or, or just the enhancement thereof. Um, from your perspective, it seems as though uh, coming up with biological or genetic treatments might might actually be significantly harder than having some sort of neural enhancement. Now, again, I know some folks are more aggressive about timelines on these sorts of things. It does seem as though you at least believe that something like that might be possible. Of course, they're working on neuroprosthetics right now, and there's they're, uh, you know they're they're chipping away at, at some of that with with rodents and replacing hippocampi. and Ted Berger's work and all that, um, what are your thoughts on, on how darn long it would take to, to have any kind of cognitive enhancement to speak of for human beings? Would we be looking at you know half of that time frame you just talked about, You know, 50,000, 100,000 years? Or- it
1: would be much sooner than that. Um, the, I mean, there are now actual cognitive enhancements if you count um, motor control substitutes and so forth. Yeah, so neuro- and I, I,
0: I consider those to be a pretty yes, real deal. The neural trend.
1: prostheses are already here. The real issue, uh, I mean, they're here in limited ways. They're, they're yep. laboratory things. They're not commercial things that you can you know order not yet. You yep, and not install it yet. yourself, but um, but they are here, and, and we know roughly how to make them. There's a lot of kind of fine grained detail that has to be sorted. There's a lot of material science that needs to be done. We have to figure out how to put these things in without risking infection and so forth. Um, The rate-limiting step in improving our memory, I think, if you're talking about not just like fixing the memory that was destroyed um, in, let's say, in a war or something like that, but like giving us an enhanced memory like no human has had before. I think the rate-limiting step there is we don't know how the information is encoded in our brains. If we did, we could probably make big advances relatively quickly. So it really depends on sorting the neuroscience out, figuring out basically what is the interface to the human brain, when it stores, say, a sentence. So, if I remember that the person who is interviewing me now, his name is Dan. That, that's like a proposition in, in the psychologist sense. Um, that's stored in my memory somewhere. How do I read that out? How do I how do I write something else like that? Yeah. We don't really know what the code is. Um, the rest of it how to actually electrically interface. We've got some ideas about how to do that. We certainly know how to write computer programs that can translate between interfaces. We just don't really understand how sentences and things like sentences are stored in the brain. I think that that's maybe a 50-year project. It's certainly not a 50,000-year project. Okay. It's trickier if you want to have the genes build the stuff from scratch and actually... Manipulate our genomes. Think that's like even one thousand ha- okay. genes. They're all yeah. interacting each other with each other and with the environment in very complicated ways. And so it's like the difference between um, putting some addition into a robot versus like figuring out how the whole thing was manufactured. It's, it's even more complicated than that because robot manufacture is not that complex but okay, the embryology of the human brain is exceedingly complex and, yep. and interactive and so forth which is why like if a few genes go awry we can have mental disorders and things like that it's a yep. very delicate um, developmental process and I think that part's going to take a while maybe 50,000 is too many but um, <laughs> I was talking about like making a whole scale rewiring like we can already do modest things yeah um, you know we could mess with your oxytocin receptors if if we wanted to, for example, but there is often a balance there, and, and I'm, I'm uh, leery of disrupting that balance until we understand yeah, a lot.
0: And I think I think uh, that's that's why we have uh, sort of the, the laws and rules around what we can do to folks, and and uh, why why people are tinkering away with animals, whether that's a good or bad thing, I can't exactly say. But but yes, I think that there's some all tre- trepid- some trepidation. About
1: CRISPR right now, which yeah, is this amazing gene editing technique, and um, a lot of people don't want to use it in humans, and I certainly well understand why they take yep. that position. I I don't. I don't think we're ready to use it in humans. I'm not sure I would have a blanket moratorium. It's complicated, and there are places where you might really change a lot of people's lives by using the technique. So it's a very complicated question. But in principle, we do know how to edit genomes now.
0: So, so, um, and you know, I know that some folks, Gary, you know, really don't believe that our minds should uh, be enhanced and/or improved in in some way via. you know, synthetic substrates of of some kind to help us process information, or or whatever the case may be. It sounds like on on your end, although we certainly have work to do to start cracking away at things like memory, for example, is one of a million examples. Um, it, it sounds like on on your end, you you'd be uh, optimistic so long as the so long as it was safe that that there would be legitimate betterment to be found there. It doesn't seem like the sacredness of the human is is inherently. Uh, something that would sort of prevent you from maybe leaning in the direction of getting yeah, your memory fixed.
1: If I really believed that, you know, there was no enhancement allowed and humans were sacred, then I'd have to give up my eyeglasses, and I don't want to do that. Yeah, so, but, yeah. You know, the, the, the retina is part of the brain, and, and my retina doesn't focus very well, and so I, I buy a prosthetic for that. It
0: helps and you, you would you have to ridden your horse all the way up here for this interview or something.
1: Exactly. No, so, I know yeah, what you mean. Yeah, okay, I'm, so,
0: I'm, so, so for you... Did it's, you think that yeah. there
1: are... Um, Serious issues to be considered about distribution and kind of ethical issues, and um, so we don't, for example, want only the rich people to get neuroprosthetics and then have an even bigger divide between uh, rich and poor. So I don't think these questions are at all trivial. But in the long run, I'm a pragmatist. I think you know if you can improve people's vision by giving them glasses, uh, and you know then
0: why not? Yep, and and I, some people see those as the same continuum. Some don't. I mean, James Hughes, for example, at the IET. Um, is uh, is in the same boat as yourself where you know we've sort of been quote unquote enhancing ourselves for quite some time if there are pragmatic benefits we're going to do it Uh, if it's illegal here it'll be legal somewhere else Um, and uh, we sort of have to make the most of the transition. I'm sort of of that of that same belief. Not dogmatic about it but I'm of of that same belief. Lastly Gary um, you know we talked briefly about memory. In terms of what could or might be enhanced that would be beneficial what are some other aspects of the kludge upstairs um, which you know, thank goodness is is nice enough to to function in some pretty cool ways and let us have great conversations and whatnot but is but it's nonetheless still still rather kludge like. Um, what are what are some other functions thereof that we might want to edit, tweak, fix, adjust, enhance if we get the ability? Memory is just one of so many. What else might be worth tinkering Nothing with one. if it's safe to do so?
1: Number one on my wish list, I think would be better ability to calibrate the interaction between our ancestral reflexive systems and our modern deliberate systems. So I would like to be able to say, I'm simply not going to eat any dessert. I'm going to switch this up, and no matter how tempted I am, it's just not going to happen. Mm. Um, I think that that would be great. I mean, I think a lot so, of So enhancing our lives,
0: volition, enhancing volition in some way.
1: That's right. A lot of our lives um, surround, as I think Freud said, um, a conflict between kind of, you know, our rational beliefs and, and our irrational beliefs. And it's, it's a um, tough burden for most of us. And, and if we could have a little bit of, you know, in the offline reflective moment, I decide this is how I want to live my life and now I'm going to actually stick to it. Um, that would be cool. Instead, I sit here and you know fritter away time, uh, looking on the web that I know I'm wasting time, but I just can't help myself.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so being able to have uh, better volitional control and almost program in some way, Gary, for for lack of better terms, you know the kinds of behaviors, habits uh, that are genuinely aligned with your your values, not get caught up in sort of the hoo ha of what your lizard brain would like to do now.
1: That that would be you know high on my wish list after fixing my memory or maybe even ahead of
0: it. Yeah, I, I'd put it ahead.
1: Those would be my top two, and I think they're probably enough to ask
0: for. Yes, yes, for sure. At least for now, I, I'd uh, I'd also do maybe maybe some degree of control of our our uh, subjective well-being uh, in some sense. I think we're pretty bad no. at calibrating yeah. that and, and adjusting yeah, that. Yeah, would that. be a great thing too, right? <laughs> yeah, to to aggregate. aggregate. I mean, if we're thinking about a utilitarian sense of sort of the aggregate benefit to sentience, I think. Um, Making them making feel decent would, would be a good first step, too. But, anywho, we're, we're a little bit ways off of that, but it's great to be able to glean a little bit of insight um, on, on your perspective. here, Gar- uh, What Would you
1: say? I must sign off because uh, my children have returned home. So thank you very much for having me.
0: You got it, Gary. All right, catch you later. Bye-bye. And that wraps up this episode on the Tech Emergence podcast. Thanks for being here. And remember to subscribe on iTunes to stay on top of the latest news breaks, Researcher perspectives and entrepreneur interviews in artificial intelligence, neurotechnology, and more. And we want to hear from you as well, so be sure to leave a review on iTunes, which are always appreciated, or contact us directly at infotechemergence.com. At and remember, all of our entrepreneur interviews and interviews with top researchers from around the world, from Stanford to Oxford and beyond, can be found right on our main site at techemergence.com. Remember to sign up for the newsletter while you're there. So with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Figella signing off. And I'll see you next week.